Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Jeremy Raj, I'm the National Head of Residential Property at Erwin Mitchell and I'm in the hot seat this week. We're going to be talking about the housing market, recent developments, in particular the lockdown and the stamp duty holiday that was announced last week and what that might mean for more people who are looking to get on the property ladder and move in together. In order to do that, I've got three special guests this week, uh, family lawyer, Deborah Levy, tax trusts and estates specialist, Emma McCann, and Natasha Furman from Estate Agents Winkworths. Natasha, do you wanna kick us off? What first prompted you to look into moving in together with someone, if I can be a little bit personal to start with? Of course, Jeremy. So for me, um, I was getting married, and so we decided that we should um, obviously move in together, but wanted to buy a house together. So um, we bought in London, and I remember it vividly. Very exciting time, lots of, of uh, you know, new things to learn about. But the big thing was, were we going to be tenancy in common, or were we going to be joint tenants? And, and I remember Natasha, being... a bit of legal jargon there to start with from, from the non-lawyer. Well done. Straight in. Um, Emma, perhaps you would like to pick that apart. One of the problems that people often have with buying their first home is that there is a lot of specialist jargon. Can you help us with joint tenants yeah, and tenants abs in common? Absolutely. Um, so joint tenants and tenants in common, it's two ways to own property jointly. Um, when you are going into a, a purchase with another person or a number of other people it's obviously a big decision joint tenants means that the ownership of the property passes automatically to the survivor or the surviving joint owners so just by one of them passing away means it automatically becomes the ownership of the others whereas tenants in common means that you can decide what happens to your individual share and that might be a 50 percent share or it could be a 25 percent share it gives you a bit more flexibility to dictate what happens with your share so sure, it all... that's brilliant and i think we're going to come back to how you can decide up on shares and how you record those things in a little bit more detail further on um deborah just to bring you in um a little bird tells me that you may be watching from afar um a scenario where someone wants to move in with someone else do you want to tell us a little bit about that Absolutely. I sort of actually wondered during lockdown whether it was something I said. I was pushed even closer to my 24-year-old daughter who has returned from university and is working, but as a teacher she wasn't working because all the schools were closed and I'd been working at home. Then she announced that she was buying um, a property with her boyfriend, or in fact her boyfriend's buying the property in his sole name. So I began to be rather concerned because other than loads of Amazon orders which were turning up, whether it was Hoover's plates, whatever. She's not contributing a penny towards the property, but she is moving in. And I thought with my family law hat on, what interest is she going to be acquiring that property? And I think very little. Well, that's very apposite for our conversation. Funnily enough, I, I have a 21-year-old daughter who's living with me during lockdown. She's a university student and um, I bumped into her this morning. She's been with her boyfriend, Peter, for about a year and a half. And with this podcast on in my mind, I said to her, so Emily, 
If you were going to buy a property with Peter, what do you think you would want to know? Um, sadly, this is a podcast because if I could share with you the look of abject terror on her face when her father <laughs> asked her that question out of the blue, I think it would have been worth seeing. Um, but she did recover quickly and we we had a bit of a chat. And, and as with you, Deborah, um, it really struck me as somebody involved in the industry um, mm. that even the basics weren't clear to her. Um, she's a reasonably intelligent young lady uh, who takes a keen interest in the world around her. Um, but it was a complete mystery as to how these things work. So um, from a relationship point of view, um, what are the key things that you think people need to talk about before they even get to that first step about or, of moving in together? I think what's really important is whether they are going to have an interest in the property. and. In fact, just before this recording, I came off a new client call where the client, quite a young guy, I felt terribly sorry for him, was in tears. He bought a property with his partner, unmarried. They put the property in joint names as joint tenants. He contributed a lot. His mother, so a lot of mum, you know, bank of mum and dad, his mother put in a lot of money as well. And they did not set out their respective shares. So the assumption if it's in joint names, is that it's equal. And I think it's so important to set out what the intentions are right at the very beginning. Absolutely. So, Natasha, you, you've got a, a, a high street window frontage, so people walk past and then they come in when they're allowed to, um, maybe less so in these days of lockdown. Um, is this something that you've come across with people coming to buy for you where maybe um, some alarm bells start ringing in terms of the nature of the relationship? Is it something that an estate agent would ever comment on? Um, well, obviously, we would hope that a lot of work had been done before they came through the door, but you're absolutely right. They don't necessarily think it through. Um, we, we are, I think that on the whole, it is pretty clear when both are buying and or if only one is buying. But we have had a scenario, for example, where both were buying and they hadn't factored in the stamp duty because one of them also owned another property. And therefore, all of a sudden, they were going to be hit with a higher stamp duty of 3% um, as, as a total purchase. And so it started to change the way that their, their deposit was working. So and that's to get a little bit too much into the detail. But the point is, is that we make sure that when we are talking to applicants, as to, and it, particularly when they go under offer, we have to set out very clearly who is buying the property. We do not go the extra step, though, which is what we're talking about now and whether it's um, tenancy in common and joint tenancy. So we leave that to the solicitors. But, um, but yeah, we have to be very clear on who is buying. Absolutely. So, Emma, I think that, that comes straight <laughs> to your territory. Um, at what point do you think, do you think there is a point at which it's too early for people to discuss that kind of thing with you? Absolutely not. Um, it's a really important consideration because there's all sorts of things that we would include in a document. It's called the trust deed, a declaration of trust that explains the circumstances of the purchase of the property. So it's all laid out really clearly what the intention was at the outset. So if there's any disagreement or falling out further down the line, there's something there in black and white that shows what people intended at the beginning. And that so can absolutely, take that declaration of trust is going to be a key document where, wherever there's more than one person owning a property together. 
Um, what do you think are the most important features of a declaration of trust? And what, what could people be thinking about before they come to the lawyers um, so that they've done some of the groundwork? So they need to think about um, uh, you know, how they're going to own the property, whether it be joint tenants or tenants in common, what contributions both parties are making. I'm saying both parties, there might be more parties. You often get contributions from like, it's already been mentioned, bank of mum and dad. Does mum and dad want their contribution back if the property gets sold or is it a gift? You have to think about things like who's contributing to the mortgage, um, if they do any um, improvements to the property, does that change the share that the person gets? Um, I guess a, a lot of what you're saying depends on the nature of the relationship. So um, it may be siblings, it may be people who are in a partnership of one form or another. It may be people that are buying a property for an investment. But but looking at, um, if we can, the more romantic end of things, Deborah, can I come to you on that and, and how that fits in? Well, what I would also uh, recommend and advise in connection with what Emma is doing is to have a cohabitation agreement, because what a trustee doesn't usually address is all the other more what I would call fluffy bits. So, you know, buying the lovely sofa, who's going to get that back if the parties separate, who's going to get um, the furnishings back. And in fact, the call that I just had before this one was, you know, who's going to keep the pets? What happens with that? who's going to pay for everything else and what's going to happen if the relationship does break down, who's going to move out. So I think a cohabitation agreement alongside the trustee is something that I would definitely recommend in these circumstances. So would, Natasha, that be anything that would, would cross the radar uh, in terms of negotiations when people uh, you must overhear an awful lot of conversations that people have when they're talking about buying properties. Do you, do you generally get the feeling that this is part of people's thinking or, or do you feel that it's something where more education is needed? I absolutely think more education is needed and signposting out front and early. And actually agents can should be in the driving seat in order to be able to facilitate this. So I think that is definitely a, a takeaway, even from this podcast right now. I think that where we get caught up as agents is we're always mindful of how is it going to be funded? So really, our due diligence extends to talking to the mortgage brokers and making sure that there's enough deposit there and how that deposit is being shared. But we don't go that extra step, which is what we're discussing right now, which is of course where you're, it gets more you're employed by by sellers in mm. order to sell mm. their properties, mm. and so your first duty is to them, but also to make sure that. The buyers are going to be genuinely in a position to do this, that they're going to get the money together, etc. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other things that you may well have come across is the unfortunate situation where there's been a parting of maybe a couple that um, have owned a property jointly. Um, and I think, Deborah, that that is another feature of, of mm -hmm. this side of the market that's key mm -hmm. for you. So. How do you think that that issue of marriage, marriage breakdown um, needs to be fed into this conversation? The law relating to marriage is so very different to those who are unmarried. If we look at very briefly unmarried partners, where there's a dispute relating to property, then it's the Trust of Land and Appointment of Trustees Act, a really big mouthful, we call it TALATA, which governs how you decide who's going to get what shares in the property. 
when you're married, the law has got a much wider discretion. So it is less important who contributed and how much to the purchase price of the property. So the trustee that Emma was talking about will have some evidential weight, but it won't carry the same weight as perhaps having a prenup. So where the contributions are unbalanced, I would strongly recommend that parties think about a prenup. Absolutely. So prenup, again, a little bit of legal jargon there. Can you give us a bit more insight into what that means, how it works? A prenuptial agreement is an agreement, as, as it says on the tin, you would enter into before the marriage, which would set out what the parties own, what they earn, and what sort of settlement they would anticipate having in the event or the unfortunate event of a divorce. So much better to set that all out before things go wrong. We were talking about romance before. Unfortunately, it's a very unromantic thing to start talking about it, but it will save hopefully a lot on costs if you have that agreement rather than sort of going into, a, into things rather blind. Of course, and my understanding is that even if you have got married and you then buy a property, it's not too late to sort these things out and bring a bit of clarity to your financial arrangements. Well, then you would enter into a post-nuptial agreement and uh, we do get people coming along to us. They didn't have time before the marriage or their circumstances have changed or their uh, parents are advancing monies, gifting monies, trust arrangements. And yes, certainly you can enter into post-nuptial agreements as well. Um, I just want to mention when we're talking about all these different forms of protection, that one thing that people should do when they're looking at buying property is also have a will drawn up because I know it's not a particularly nice thing to think about as well, but we cover off what happens during lifetime. It's really important to, what to cover off what happens if one of the parties passes away as well. Absolutely, so and it's a great point to raise. I mean, sadly, in, in this time of a global pandemic, we do all need to think about things in the round. So I think we've established there's a huge amount that um, needs to be thought about. And the reality is the further in advance you can do that, the better it's going to be. If you pitch up at Natasha's doorstep, it's really helpful for her to know that you're genuine, credible buyers, that you've got your financial arrangements in place. And that brings me to another feature of current times, which we wanted to discuss, which is the effect of lockdown. Um, from my point of view, um, dealing with residential property week in, week out, the market shut down completely at the end of March. Um, government relaxed the restrictions in mid-May. Since then, Natasha, I think you've seen a real change in what was pretty much a dead market. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's been... Um, a real riding of the wave, I think, is probably the best way of putting it. So, um, Winkworth, we've got 100 officers across the UK, so we've pulled together the, some data from that. And the statistics are showing on the valuations that we've done, we were 27% up year on year from last June. So that was after the lockdown, but pre-stamp duty, or lockdown for, um, for agents to start doing viewings. Um, but it's jumped to 72% after the stamp duty change. So there's been a, there's been a real increase there. Um, we, we've certainly noticed that in my team. I mean, the yeah. numbers of instructions disappeared completely during yeah. that lockdown period and have massively ramped up ever mm. since. Um, so that wave of enthusiasm, um, do you think that's going to keep going? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the time being, we've got real pent-up supply and demand. Um, we're getting phone calls every day with with new um, valuations, and um, and our applicants they've jumped sixty-four percent since the stamp duty change. And I know we'll come on to talk to that a little bit more. But um, yeah, from our point of view, this is is almost like summer. The summer lull is not happening, and the springtime market has moved into the summertime. Where, where my concern lies is obviously as we move into the winter. And so um, obviously none of us have a crystal ball on what that might look like. But certainly no. for now, all the way up till October, I think that it's going to be really quite an active market. What I noticed um, during lockdown, a lot of people moving in together, you know, people that I know, it's escalated relationships in a positive way. But it's also, you could call it de-escalated relationships in the negative way in that a lot more people sort of think, oh, well, I've spent a lot of time and I can't spend the next 10, 15, 20 years. And so that means that they're going to be separating and buying properties, but equally on a more positive um, front. People are sort of thinking, well, we had the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. We weren't going to be able to see each other. Let's move in. And I think that's going to happen more if there's a second wave. So I think there's an awful lot going on out there, uh, which is affecting the market. And, and people's need yeah, for and that, that brings us brings yeah. us on to our earlier point about how there can be good reasons and bad reasons for people wanting to move. Clearly being uh, isolated together has worked for some people, but not for others, putting extra strain on relationships. Mm. And bringing it back to the to the more financial side of things, Emma, um, the, the stamp duty land tax holiday um, was brought in very recently. It goes until the end of March. Are there other tax considerations that you think people ought to be factoring in when they're talking about moving in together? It's obviously a massive change for people um, when they take that step. Um, there are other tax considerations, but it very much depends on the person's individual circumstances um, and what sort of, um, you know, whether they are employed or whether they are, you know, in later life, you know, various different um, taxes that might come into play. Capital debt gains taxes obviously can be a consideration if it's somebody's second property, that sort of thing. So what I would say is that people need to get that advice right at the outset when they're thinking about doing these things so that they know they're not caught out at a later date by um, a, a tax that they didn't know existed or they didn't think applied to their situation. Sure, I mean, uh, tax is a hugely complicated area and, and it always helps to have someone to guide you through that. Um, inheritance tax, capital gains tax, uh, stamp duty land tax, those are all the things that people need to be factoring in. If people are doing their calculations and working things out, are you aware of any other things that they, they need to think about or be wary of? Um. Well, just the, the general costs of, of purchase and the legal fees, um, you know, things like the estate agent fees. Uh, the, the those are always very reasonable, I, I hear. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, so the, you know, just people don't realise how much extra I think is required it's a, sometimes. It's a good point, absolutely. I mean, Natasha, have you had customers coming in who then got a nasty shock. I mean, one of the things that always strikes me is that we as solicitors invariably recommend that people have a survey on pretty much any property that they are buying. 
Um, but that's something that sadly isn't taken up as much as possible. From a seller's point of view, they might not always be that keen um, for issues to be revealed. Um, but is it is it something that you come across regularly that there are arguments on on that side of things? Um, actually, no. I think I think we're fairly lucky. Most um, of our buyers are showing that they've been fairly well researched before they get as far as buying a house. I say most. Um, you know, I think if you're financing uh, a purchase, then you'll naturally move down that road where you'll have a home buyer's report and that will be explained to you at a later date. Um, mortgage advisors obviously do a good job in terms of signposting what all those extra costs are up front. And often the banks are paying for the valuations in the home buyer survey um, as part of the deal that which they're doing. Um, and generally, I find that if there are cash buyers, then um, then they, they do still go the extra mile to get the survey done. And it's something that we would also recommend as part of the due diligence as well. Um, so so I, I haven't had many people on that on that scale. It's, I find it's more with the first time buyers when you get to the lower end of the market around the sort of like 150 to 200,000 pound properties where they may well have just not realised um, and so that's happened a number of times. Yeah, and obviously um, the stamp duty holiday is going to be uh, a massive boost for mm -hmm. most players in the market. Uh, Emma, you've seen changes to taxes coming and going, um, and that's time limited until the end of March. Um, can you see that that will um, give a rise in instructions to you or uh, to the property industry generally? I, I would like to think so because it's a really good incentive for people that are thinking about things or have been thinking about things to 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 do something about it. Um, and you know, one would hope that if they are saving money in terms of stamp duty, that they could put that money to good use by having some of the other um, documents put into place that would set everything up nicely um, right from the beginning. So I'd really like to think that that yes, it would. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that that's understandable from the tax lawyer's point of view, from the family lawyer's point of view. Do you find that this is something that people are willing to contemplate? I mean, in the same way that Natasha was talking about whether people will will have surveys done or not, because it's quite easy to understand that if you buy a, a house and the roof is about to fall off, you need to put that into your thinking. But maybe if you're in uh, young love and you're contemplating moving in together. I think what often helps is if parents are gifting or advancing money. The most recent cohabitation agreement I had was the father had given his daughter a lot of money to help her purchase the first property. Her boyfriend was moving in and he absolutely insisted she had to have a cohabitation agreement. So I think sometimes it takes external sources, you know, the wisdom of parents, people are <laughs> Older who always helpful yeah. to have a scary dad glowering in the background. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> or an angry mum saying, "Look, an angry you need, mum too. yeah, you need to do this." Or, you know, somebody who's got some life experience. And the same with the prenup. Or I think with um, second time around uh, marriages, I think people, you know, are more um, alive to these issues and would rather invest whether it's five thousand, ten thousand pounds. I know it sounds a lot at the time. Mm -hmm in a prenup rather than go through what can often be a very costly divorce as it is with you know a very costly procedure if you've got to sort out the shares in a property an agreement will carry a huge amount of weight um in saving those Emma, costs. 
Emma, you've you've done a lot of these declarations of trust. Um, where where are the general sticking points? Are those are those conversations that you have repeatedly with the same people, and you think, well, here we go again, or is it something that you think, oh, I may be able to manage this one from the outset? No, you. Um, I have to say that they're virtually all different. So even if you think that something sounds like a common scenario that you've heard before, there will be something different that somebody wants to include. And it's usually how the any excess gets distributed if they were to go their separate ways. Oh, or, really? Uh, so okay. who who gets the the larger proportion? How that's worked out? Um, you know, if somebody's putting a larger deposit in, do they get their full deposit, and that also means they get a larger share of the equity? Or it's those sorts of conversations um, that tend to cause the issues. And thinking about. Um, you know how how that how that would actually pan out suddenly makes people realise that oh this might not be um, sort of all sort of flowers and roses like we thought it could actually go wrong and we need to really think this through seriously. Yeah, um, and clearly having those conversations well in advance of anything going wrong is going to make the whole situation a lot less stressful if it does arise further down the line and also brings peace of mind to others that have contributed to the finances. I think um, the way that I usually describe it to people, and, and as we've all acknowledged, it's, is a very unromantic conversation. It's a bit like holiday insurance. You don't expect your holiday to go wrong, but you normally do take out insurance just in case it does. So I think looking at it like that sort of helps people think, yeah, it's worth investing um, the monies that I might otherwise have spent on stamp duty or whatever it was, um, you know, on, on setting good agreements in place. Yeah, better to be safe than sorry and to, to bring that in in the beginning. Natasha, have there been other other features of the lockdown period or the pandemic that have come out in the housing market that you've noticed? Well, we're talking about it right now, which is the divorce side, which, you know, there's been an awful lot of people that have called me to try and sort out those situations. Um, but no, no, mainly it's just that there's there's been obviously huge activity in the market. I would like to just draw on one live example, to, which is discussing around this legal side. So we've got a situation where um, the um, the wife put in the equity into the property and to the husband, he, because he had a job and he had a stable job, he was the one that could get the mortgage, but they didn't ever put any legal documentation around that to reflect it. So the only way that they've got proof is the fact that it's her word for it that she put all the equity in. So now that they've split, we're trying to sell, he's being quite difficult, even though he's sort of saying he wants to sell the property, he's not making it very easy. And she's sitting there with her obvious interest in it, but can't really do much about it. And it's very difficult for me because I cannot talk to her about it because she's not on the deed of the property because only he is. Um, because he's the one that took the mortgage. So out. a hugely valuable lesson mm. there. Um, mm. However, however much in love or, or however mm. confident mm. you are about future, um, getting joint names and really documenting what the true position is is essential. Mm. Deborah, I'm sure you'd like to jump in there as a family mm. lawyer. Yeah, that's a very difficult one. It's not uncommon, and the law on divorce is not straightforward. So just because she put more money in doesn't mean necessarily that she's going to get all of that out. It's going to depend on a huge other range of factors, needs, their ages, um, whether they've got children, health, etc., earning capacity, how they're both going to 
um, purchased another property. So it isn't that straightforward that just because she did put in more money, had she had the prenup, mm. then, you know, which again is a case in point, how helpful it would be to have recorded that at the time. Yeah, and I think our issue is actually also the, the party that we're dealing with. She's more keen to, to get the sale done, but we can't actually deal with her because she's not the one that's um, instructing us technically. So um, so it's a, it becomes quite a difficult challenge for an agent in scenarios like that. Well, it sounds like, I mean, they both need their own lawyers to, to deal with a much bigger picture. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, Emma, you'll be used to these issues of, who actually is your client, who owns the property, um, and how you can take instructions. I mean, those are those are key considerations that all lawyers have to be very careful about. Absolutely, and when we draw up a declaration of trust, we would only act for one of the parties simply because um, it's very difficult mm -hmm. if the interests are not absolutely identical mm -hmm. to be able to advise both in the same way. Um, and you do get situations like the one you just describing, Natasha, where you will get people on the legal title to the property, but the beneficial title is is effectively, you know, is, is, is other people, mm -hmm. um, other people with these interests in the property that aren't recorded legally. Um, Absolutely. So I mean, for example, the land registry uh, will show the legal ownership. Um, it will also have a note on the title, which makes it clear whether people are owning as joint tenants or as tenants in common. But if you don't actually have the physical declaration of trust, um, you're not going to be able to demonstrate it. Or if you don't have the cohabitation agreement, you're not going to be able to demonstrate it. Mm. We've we've covered a huge amount of ground, but I have the feeling that we could probably keep on talking about this for hours and different aspects of it. There are there are many reasons why people move in together um having said all of that if we if we wrap up now um can you maybe come forward with uh one or two things that you think are the key things to think about you can't be uh, ruled by your emotions you've got to think that you're usually investing a huge amount of money in you know one of the largest purchases in your life and to step back and think you know, let's sort of see what is the arrangement, because if it does go wrong, we don't want to be spending a lot of money on legal fees, better sort of invest in advance. Let, let so your, a stitch in time for you is, absolutely. is key. Yeah, let your head rule and not your heart, unfortunately. Yeah. There speaks mm -hmm. the family lawyer, Emma, <laughs> as, a, as a tax and trust lawyer. I would say that you just need to think about all the possible scenarios um you know what if this happens what if that happens because those are all the sorts of things that we want to include within the declaration of trust and That's just absolutely fantastic advice uh, particularly this year when we've all been hit by a range of things that none of us were expecting and i think if 2020 has taught us anything it's that unexpected things do happen and they can have a massive effect on everybody's life mm. absolutely That's right. Natasha, did you did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, before coming to purchase, it's really about thinking about what you can really afford and um, not overstretching yourself, particularly the climate that we're going into. Might be lovely to come out of London and buy a nice big house, but um, it's just about thinking really about what's affordable and not stretching your mortgage too much or too much. I have 5%, 10% deposits um, and, and I would rather be seeing that it was more like 20%. 
Sure. I mean, uh, unfortunately, like most things in life, a lot of it comes down mm. to the money. So doing mm. your homework, making sure mm. uh, you've worked out all of the costs. Um, there are plenty of advisors and websites available to help mm. with that. But doing your research beforehand is always going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. I think that wraps us up for today. Thank you for listening to the Erwin Mitchell podcasts. Thank you to my three special speakers. Uh, I hope you found our talk interesting and that you will join us for our next episode. Stay safe. Goodbye from us. Mm -hmm.